in three, in two, in one. <laughs> All right, everybody, welcome to episode number 122 of the Between the Cracks podcast. I am your host, Bill, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Chris. Now, Chris, more importantly than this being episode number 122, it is the beginning of Hudson Valley Horror Month Part 2. That's right, a month in which we will be focusing on very bizarre stories that have taken place in our neck of the woods, Chris. The beautiful Hudson Valley region, oh, a New York. Mm, and we are officially in the season of fall. Yes, we are. And uh, this is all going to culminate in uh, to a very special Halloween spooktacular all rights reserved, at the end of October. So, I mean, we have a lot in store for our lovely listeners out there in podcast land. So, I mean, without any further ado, I think it's time we get started. And the first case on our BTC Hudson Valley Horror Month Part 2 itinerary is probably the most infamous disappearance case in all of the Hudson Valley. That's right, Chris. Tonight... We are going to be discussing the disappearance of Richard Colvin Cox. Richard was, and still is, the only West Point military cadet to have gone missing to this very day. And his disappearance took place over 73 years ago on a fateful night in January of 1950. So we're going to stick our grubby little paws into this case and see what we can possibly come up with because we're all too familiar with the beautiful West Point campus. I mean, I've gone there plenty of times throughout the past few years to check out the West Point baseball team, the West Point Black Knights. So I'm fairly familiar with the campus. So, I mean, this is very intriguing to me. Now, let me ask you, Chris, have you ever stepped foot on the beautiful grounds of West Point? I think I've been there several times throughout my life. I mean, it's only 20 minutes away from, from me, so it's, uh, it's, it's really beautiful. It's right on the Hudson River. If, if you're ever in Cold Spring, if you look across the water, it's almost directly across the way. You can actually see West Point from uh, the other side of the river. Yeah, and it's very guarded, too. I mean, <laughs> I had to go get special clearance to get in and out of this place. When you go in uh, the front gate, you're checked in by a guard. Uh, well, you know, they're, they're, they're fully locked and loaded, just in case anything uh, crazy starts to transpire. So that, that makes this case even crazier, because it's very difficult to get in and out of this West Point campus, whether you be a visitor or a student there. So, I mean, that just adds to the lure of this mystery. I mean... Chris, where the hell did Cogs go on that fateful night? Um, we're going to try to figure that out. But uh, before we get into all that, I, you know, as we always say, and I think it's very fitting to say tonight, we need to go backwards in order to go forward. So I'm going to ask you, Chris, can you give us a little information on Cox? Well, uh... <laughs> Well, Dick was, uh... <laughs> I mean, we should point out this name, too. I mean, his name is Richard Cox, but, you know, he went by Dick. So, I mean, the main character of tonight's story's name is <laughs> Dick Cox. And uh, I'm no mathematician, Chris, but uh, to me, the name Dick Cox sounds like somewhat of a double negative. 
Well, I will tell you one thing. I'm surprised he made it to the age of 21 with a name like that, <laughs> with surviving the humiliation of, of grade school. That must have been absolutely atrocious. I mean, I wonder if kids back in the 40s and 50s were, were <laughs> as much of bricks as they are now. Kids are always bricks. doesn't matter what generation it is. But let's talk about Richard Calvin Cox's past. Although he serves in West Point, he is actually born and raised in Mansfield, Ohio, where he was born at, oh, July 25th of 1928, your exact birthday, Bill. <laughs> cool. And he was the youngest of six. Parents were Rupert and Minnie Cox. I, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, what? Uh, what was the mom's name? Uh, a Minnie Cox. <laughs> Minnie Cox. Okay, continue, Chris, please. <laughs> His family uh, were practicing uh, Christian scientists. I get the feeling or the vibe here that they didn't believe in modern medicine at this time because uh, apparently when Richard Cox was a teen, he cut his arm on a Sith. His mother apparently refused medical aid. A very smart idea with an open wound. Yeah, well, it, it turns out that this ended up turning into a very bad infection. And so then a, a nearby neighbor apparently brings him to a doctor and uh, he ends up with this prominent scar. After being in high school, he decides that he wants to voluntarily join the U.S. Army. Probably safer in war than he is with his own mom. <laughs> At least he'll get medical aid there. <laughs> get medical care. So he joins the U.S. Constabulary, if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, uh, do correct me, but this basically carries out police occupation over in the now ally-occupied Germany, because this was just after the war had ended. So basically it's just military police, right? Correct. So they, they were just maintaining, I guess, control of the area, so they needed people to police the area once they had occupied it. And he ends up actually getting the rank of sergeant here. And then later in 1947, this is when he is actually appointed to West Point, and he arrives in the U.S. Military Academy Preparatory School. So if I'm following along here, Chris, I mean, all that you have just uh, encapsulated, old uh, Richard Cox here had <laughs> accomplished quite a lot in uh, 19 to 20 years of age. We see that he goes to West Point after serving in the Army. Usually it's the other way around. I, I think nowadays, after you are accepted into West Point, you're required to serve five years in uh, the United States Army upon your graduation of West Point. <laughs> so uh, Cox here did it the other way around. He served a few years in the military and then enrolled at West Point. And it's very difficult to get into. So, I mean, this guy had to have quite the academic background, too, I would imagine. He was a member of his uh, of the National Honor Society when he was in Mansfield Senior High. And it does mention here that he was ranked academically 100th out of the 550 cadets that were there. Oh, shit. So, I mean, I mean, this is a good background for us to, to have here because now we know who we're dealing with. I mean, this, this guy is uh, ultra motivated. He's a smart young man. He must obviously be in great physical condition to... Uh, 
be handling all these objectives that he signed up for. And, uh, you know, he's still at this point in time, he's roughly only about 20 years old. So, I mean, if you put all these things together, this sounds like someone who is very much on their game. We're dealing with someone who seems to be a, a very stable individual. And so keep that on the back burner as we get a little more in depth in this story and uh, talk about exactly what happens to Richard. Not only is he performing well in West Point, he also is engaged to be married. His fiancée, Betty Timmons, which he had plans to marry once he graduated from West Point. So this is not, you know, the background of a person who wants to, to just go missing. No, not at all. But remember, we're, we're talking about the late 1940s, early 1950s. So, I mean, at 20 years old, you know, you're married with about nine kids and you've got uh, about 15 years in the union. I said you got about 15 years in the union, Chris, which means you would have started the job at five years old. <laughs> <laughs> That's the reaction I'm looking for, Chris. <laughs> but yes, this, this, <laughs> the stage is set here. We, we, we now have a, a fairly good understanding of who Richard is, or at least who he's presenting himself to be. With, with that said, we have to look at the other side of the coin here. Sometimes outwardly appearances are not all that they're cracked up to be. Now, obviously, I'm being a little facetious here, Chris, because I, I don't know uh, Richard Cox from a hole in the wall. <laughs> but uh, we're going to try to get to know him uh, just a little better here. Because all these good things that we spoke about, it all began to unravel on one fateful evening in early January of 1950. Because, little cadet boy, we learn that on Saturday, January 7th, at around 4.45, a gentleman called Cox's West Point classmate, who went by the name of Peter Haynes, who was acting as, and this is his official title, charge of quarters. <laughs> now, this is not someone who dispenses change. This is actually a, a gentleman. This is actually uh, an individual who was tasked with a duty to guard the front entrance of uh, random barracks, whatever barracks that they may be um, assigned to. <laughs> I, I guess to keep them... Uh, <laughs> to make sure none of them are going to go uh, AWOL, uh, I guess is what we're, we're talking about here. When Peter answers this call, he says that uh, the caller was somewhat rough around the edges. He said his tone was rough, he was patronizing, and for all intents and purposes, he was almost insulting. So Haynes told this very rude caller that Cox was not in the room. And the man replied, and this is verbatim, Chris, Well, look. When he comes in, tell him to come down here to the hotel. Just tell him George called. He'll know who I am. We knew each other in Germany. I'm just up here for a little while. And tell him I'd like to get him a bite to eat. So, <laughs> he's being a dick, not like Richard, but being a dick in a very condescending way, Chris. <laughs> so, Peter uh, later goes on to state that he was trying to get this guy's last name. He's like, do you have a last name you would like to give him? And uh, this asshole, George, just answers back, just tell him it's George. So, Chris, I mean, this is all we know about this bizarre caller. And uh, I say bizarre because upon this phone call, as I mentioned... Everything starts to unravel from here. And it seems uh, all eyes are on this mysterious caller that goes by the name of George. 
This is, uh, I guess this is interesting, right? So this, this guy, who knows if he's currently serving or not, do we, do we even have any recollection of his age? No, we have nothing, but I, I'm going to assume that, uh, you know, if uh, Richard was, you know, roughly around 19 to 20 years old at the time he was serving in Germany, or maybe even a little younger, that, you know, if he was this friendly as George seems to uh, portray, that George was probably around the same age as him. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine that he's much older than in his uh, mid-20s. But, I mean, just the call itself seems to be very unnerving. Like, he just didn't want to give up too much information. And who knows if George is even his real first name? Seems a bit mysterious for a mysterious situation. Indeed it does. Especially knowing what we know. <laughs> Don't give it away just yet, Chris, please. <laughs> so, uh, Chris, let me ask you this. Did this phone call lead us anywhere? Just give me one second here. I'm getting some information from our research analysts. Yes. <laughs> it's coming into my ear now. Oh, oh, uh, oh, yep. So apparently at 5.30 p.m., this man enters the Grant Hall. And this is a location at West Point where cadets would meet their guests. And this person asks to see Richard. I mean, this guy seems very aggressive. I mean, if he called at 4.45... And then enters the hall at 5.30. So obviously this guy is nearby. And uh, he's being a little um, overbearing, if you ask me. Did, did, did uh, Richard even have a chance to call him back? I mean, give the guy a chance. It's 45 minutes later and this guy's showing up on the campus. Right. We, we don't know if Peter even had a chance to tell Richard that this guy was coming. So let's just say that the message does come through. But it's still yet, we don't know, but... The, the, the fact of the matter is, is that 45 minutes after this call, this guy is in Grant Hall at West Point, and he asks to see Richard. How unnerving That's, is that? I mean, for, for someone like me, I mean, I, I need to know who's coming and who's going in my life. No, no surprise visits at all, under any circumstance. I know. And this is a situation where uh, it's like if someone decides to call you instead of texting you, and... Uh, you're just like, well, I really don't feel like answering this. <laughs> like, like you're texting them back and forth and all of a sudden they, they call and you don't answer? <laughs> yeah, no no, uh, no unannounced guests that you, because uh, this really, really forces you to, to, uh, it, to Yes, now, now you have to interact. You have to, you have to deal with this situation. It's right in front yeah. of you. So uh, the cadet on duty actually telephones Richard and tells him that he has a visitor. The cadet later on, after when he's actually investigated, gives this description of this person who we're assuming at this point now is George, that he was slightly under six feet, weighing around 185 pounds, fair-haired, never heard that description before. What does that mean? Like blonde hair? Yeah, I'm assuming like light-haired, yeah. And then a, a fair complexion, and he wore a belted trench coat. Without a hat. Now, I love how it's specified without the hat, you know, because that's how like it's got... a two-piece. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like this guy's walking around like Humphrey Bogart, you know, with, with the raincoat and the, uh, the, the the hat. So, like, they're specifying, <laughs> like, sure. as if it's part of a costume. <laughs> so, perhaps, who knows, back then in the day, maybe if you wore a fucking belted trench coat, that means you were supposed to have a hat with it. And this guy wasn't wearing one. <laughs> so... This was noted. And so now uh, Richard comes and he, he enters Grant Hall and he shakes hands with this man. 
the, the cadet that was apparently on duty at the time did notice the behavior of Richard almost as if he was actually happy to see this person who had just arrived. Now, uh, so basically Dick got very excited. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Chris, please. Uh, Dick got very excited to see George. And then what happens next? Please for, inform us. It's getting very cold out here in the PTCRF. Well, we also don't know exactly if it was a genuine excitement. I mean, it's very easy. You know, someone shows up in person. Yeah. You know, we, we all know. It. You put on the fake face. Very oh, true. I can't believe you're here. Yeah. Yep. Meanwhile, you're saying, get the fuck uh, out of here. But Very good point, Chris. Very good point. <laughs> anyway, regardless of that, Richard signs out in the company B2 departure book, which is obviously something that you must do if you're leaving. This was indicating, apparently, that he was going to have dinner off campus. Now, I don't know where they were headed for dinner, but uh, by today's standards, I mean, the last place you want to go is Newburgh. That, that, that place is a shithole. <laughs> That's what's nearby. <laughs> I don't know what it looked like in the 1950s, but <laughs> Maybe a little now. nicer. Maybe a little yeah. nicer. But uh, yeah, uh, Richard had to sign out in order to leave uh, the grounds. I mean, that's how well documented everything was on this West Point campus. You couldn't, oh, yeah. You couldn't just come and go as you please. And the same rules apply today, too. If you're part of any branch of government, I mean, you're going to be well-tracked. Aren't we all? <laughs> At least there they, they say it up front. Uh, we're just being <laughs> tracked uh, against our will. But it actually, we end up finding out, and this is, this is from Richard's own words to his roommates, that he says that he actually did not go out to dinner. But they actually drank a bottle of whiskey while sitting in this man's parked car. It's an odd thing yeah. to do. I mean, I mean, let's let's examine that for a second. I mean, if you have the opportunity to go off campus and go out to a, like a nice restaurant or just a bar or something like that, wouldn't you choose to do that? I mean, chance to go and meet some maybe a girl or something or, you know, I mean, it seems to me just sitting in a car kicking back a bottle of whiskey. It's just a, a little bit bizarre. It's something you do, would do it maybe as a teenager. This, this was probably the next best thing to just... You know, you're going out there in a car with your buddy or something and just getting wasted off of a bottle of whiskey. Maybe they're shooting the shit. Maybe they're, you know, talking about the old days. When I say the old days, I mean perhaps a year or two earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Very good point, Chris. Very good point. They may have been in a mood to relive the uh, glory days you know, six months ago. And uh, I wanted to start kicking back some drinks and the hell with it. That's what they did. After this uh, lovely uh, whiskey charade in the car... Uh, he returns and he, uh, of course, signs in the departure book. I don't need anybody. I don't need this place. <laughs> so, uh, he apparently takes a shower and he sleeps off the alcohol. His, uh, roommates apparently prank him that evening, just like roommates would of anybody who was drunk. Uh, they took photographs of him while he was apparently slumped over his desk. <laughs> I wonder if they drew any Richards on his face. <laughs> Oh, oh, I'm sure uh, there was. <laughs> That's just too good. Now things get interesting, though. So he comes back, he signs in the book, and now we find out that when he originally signed in the book, he puts in 1923. Now, this is, of course, military time, which it would be 723 in the evening. Mm hmm. 
but he returns later that evening and alters the time that he put in the book. And he puts it at 1823, which would be 623, because he wanted to make it seem as though he attended the 6.30 p.m. cadet supper formation. He obviously doesn't want anyone know or having shown record that he missed it. Hmm. So he actually alters the sign-in book. So perhaps he wants to have an unblemished record here. And so he fears enough that if, you know, it is determined, and we do find out later on that if this had been discovered, that he would actually have been charged with violating the cadet honor code. Things are strict in the military world. We find out that the next morning he attends uh, Sunday chapel service. So I don't know if this was something that was required of all cadets or uh, if if he was religious enough that he stuck with doing every Sunday chapel service. All right. So what you're telling me now is that Cox has recovered. He picked his limp body off the floor and uh, headed down to uh, the chapel the, the, the following day. That's one way to put it. <laughs> Continue, Chris. <laughs> but now details start to spill out. So Richard is <laughs> something funny. <laughs> What was spilling out, Chris? Please tell us. More details uh, start coming out. Uh, so Richard is now giving details on the person that he was with the night before. So he must be getting, I'm sorry to interrupt, but he, he must be getting drilled by his other, by his friends there. Like, who the hell is this guy? Everybody's, everybody's very interested in who this George character was. I'm sure uh, in, a, in a, the life of a military cadet, just about anything would be interesting to talk about others other than the military. So yes, I bet you're right, yeah. Perhaps perhaps the digging is they just want to know what the fuck you did, because you clearly came back drunk, and they know that. So uh, what the hell are you doing? He fesses up that the person that he was drinking with the night before was a former U.S. Army Ranger who served in the same unit as him when he was in Germany. The kind of eerie part here now is that uh, Richard actually says that this man likes to brag about killing Germans during the war. So stopping real quick right now, we we can get the sense that this gentleman is older than Richard. He served in the war and actually was in battle, which we know that Richard was not. Richard came um, into the U.S. Army after the war had ended, and he was more a sort of military police at this point. Yeah, so obviously we're looking at this guy, George, and he has to be, I mean, if we're going to, Look at that uh, as a reference. He has to be at least, I would say, four to six years older than Richard. So, I mean, maybe mid-20s, maybe a little older. You know, maybe late 20s, early 30s. But the, the thing, too, is he said not only was he killing these Germans during the war, but he would actually emasculate uh, them. So he would cut off their genitalia. You hear something like that, you can only assume that you're dealing with a very twisted individual. And... uh Boy, were we ever, because the stories go from bad to worse, because Cox ends up telling his fellow cadets that this mysterious George character admitted to him that he had gotten a German girl pregnant while he was over there, but then he murdered her to prevent her from having the baby. Jesus. So, I mean, this is a sociopath. Yeah, that's, that's, uh... Dude, I don't like this. This is taking a very dark turn suddenly. No, that, that's, yeah, that, that's the part where you're like, ah, oh, you know what, I, I better get back. And, and, and if you're 
Richard, you got to be freaked out because now this guy knows where you are. He, he he has your phone number. He knows how to get a hold of you. And apparently he could just walk in and out of Grant Hall uh, as he sees fit. And you got to come down and be cordial. The one good thing is that you're essentially living in a, a barracks that's locked down at all times. So if you really didn't want to leave, yeah, you know, another, probably... another good point. Another good point. And, uh, fortunately we find out that uh, Cox did not want to leave. And, uh, when uh, George came calling again, Cox just stayed put, and that's the end of our story, Chris. <laughs> Am I right, little drummer boy? What the fuck? <laughs> uh, well, am, I, am I right, Chris? Am I right? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Uh, you're completely wrong. That afternoon, we're now talking about the next day on Sunday. Richard signs out a second time to, to meet up with this man, and, and he this is does... After this is after he spilled the beans uh, to everyone that this guy's a sociopath. Correct. So now, uh, I guess at least everybody knows uh, what kind of person that he is meeting up with, but what does that say about Richard at this point if he's going to see him again? <laughs> well, we find out that, uh, you know, Richard wasn't uh, overly thrilled with being at West Point. There were quite a few letters that where he had written to his family, his mom and his fiance, that uh, <laughs> he essentially could not wait for this to all be over with. So my guess here is that he was uh, so unhappy with being at West Point that he was like, you know what? I'm going to take my chances and hit the streets again with this uh, this murderer. <laughs> so uh, I'd rather hang out with somebody who claims to be uh, a murdering lunatic. And I'm not talking about killing uh, in the line of duty. That's one thing. Uh, admitting to, to killing an innocent German woman who was pregnant, no less, uh, is just next level. That, that's the... Uh, that's my cue to uh, to leave and never return. But he, not good. He hangs out with him for a second time, and, and that, that's Sunday afternoon. So we're now talking about uh, January eighth, and he returns at four thirty p.m. It just noted that the following six days, so for the next week, uh, it's without incident. Things go on uh, essentially fine. Then. Uh, Richard says something to his roommates again uh, about this man. And now we start to get the feeling that something might be up. What ever do you mean? Well, Richard, when speaking to his roommates, says that he hoped he wouldn't have to see the fellow again. And then he gave them this impression that that he really didn't like this guy. And on G, I wonder why. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, he's uh, emasculating uh, dead corpses, and then he's uh, murdering innocent pregnant women. I mean, what's not to love? <laughs> At this point now, there is an uneasiness, I guess. And, and the feeling we're getting here is that this man is pursuing uh, Richard for whatever reason. He came to see Richard at West Point when Richard really wasn't expecting him. So the call came, 45 minutes later, this guy just shows up. Yeah, they hang out one night, everything's fine, and then the next day they hang out. He's suddenly starting to be like, all right, I've had enough of this guy. And, and we, so we, we all have that one acquaintance that 
they, they try to kind of weasel their way into your life, you know, in, mm. in, in a certain way. And then you give them an inch and they, they take a mile pretty much, you know, and you have to kind of, uh, Nip that in the bud as soon as it <laughs> as soon as it starts. I mean, this seems like a uh, host and uh, parasite uh, relationship here. <laughs> exactly, and uh, I mean, at this point, I'm I'm gonna pull the cadet card. I, I think, right, and just be like, listen, I you know I'm in a I'm in a military school. I really can't leave again. Yeah. My, so, my, my, uh, my studies come first. They are paramount. <laughs> <laughs> I love this place. <laughs> After this second visit from uh, quote unquote George. Our man Richard here, he he seems to be done with him, right? Like he, you you said, he he <laughs> he had a great disdain for George, but unfortunately, that's uh, that's not the last time that uh, George ends up interacting with old Richard, is it? Because remember, our story began on that fateful evening or afternoon at four forty-five on January seventh of nineteen fifty. They had that encounter, and then the following day, and things went dormant for a little bit, I guess during the, the, the week, right? Because he met him on the Saturday, and then uh, Sunday, and then I'm assuming that Richard had class throughout the rest of the week, so he probably couldn't go off campus. So it seems like maybe things were, you know, hitting a wall and drying up between uh, Richard and George. That was, Chris, until that following Saturday, January. 14th. That's when Richard Cox was watching a basketball game between West Point and your alma mater, Rutgers University. I've never been there before. It seems like Cox has finally moved on from George. George is a no more. Right, pal? Well, no, no, not at all, actually. <laughs> what do you mean? Although uh, we aren't really entirely sure here because after this game, Richard is seen talking to a man that I guess the either roommates or uh, men that knew of this George person, they, they thought that perhaps this was George. Although the description that we initially get on the Saturday prior... From the person who uh, was in the, the receiving area uh, at Grant Hall, remember that they described this person as fair-haired and a fair complexion, right? Mm -hmm. Well, this person apparently, by eyewitness accounts, had dark hair and was rough-looking. Hmm. So, uh, what exactly is going on here? <laughs> I mean, I, if I knew Chris, this case would be freaking solved. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm thinking if this guy, George, was as much of a dirtbag as Richard had described, maybe, just maybe, this guy, George, was uh, <laughs> concealing his identity. And perhaps he dyed those lovely fair-colored locks. And, uh, I mean, if you're kicking back... Uh, a bottle of whiskey in a few hours in a car. Maybe he went on a bender for a week, and uh, thus the the rough looking aspect of his appearance. I'll tell you one thing: if I was hanging out with some fucking guy that just decided to show up to my barracks, and then the next week he comes by again and his hair's a different color, <laughs> <laughs> you know something is not. <laughs> 
I'm sorry, but I have to go. (laughs) Reeking of uh, alcohol. Despite all of this, despite the the fact that we know that Richard had commented to his roommates that he hoped that he would never have to see this man again, that he really didn't care for the guy, he decides to leave yet again. And, And he mentions to his roommate that he's signing out to dine with this visitor again. You know, I, I I just had a thought, Chris. This reminds me of a, a very toxic relationship, a romantic relationship. You know, like you ever been in one of these relationships where I, I, I got to get the hell out of this, but then you go see the person again. And, you know, it, it's I'm wondering if there's something more to uh, the relationship between Richard and George. You know, maybe there's something um, of a more, maybe something more of a romantic nature is going on here. Or another thing is, you know, perhaps this George character is playing on um, Richard's uh, kind personality, if that's what he has. I don't really have much of a description of Richard from his roommates. But, you know, maybe this guy shows up, says, I don't have, uh, you know, anyone to hang out with. You know, could you just meet me? You know, like, I'd really like to talk. I'm having a rough time. He he could be saying anything. Yeah, somebody could pull you in like that. I would feel bad. I would feel bad. You know, especially if you served with someone and then... They call you up. I'm going through a rough time. And <laughs> I mean, what can you say? <laughs> I mean, after you've confessed to, to killing uh, somebody who was pregnant, I, I could tell you exactly what I would say. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, at least on the first visit, you know, if he lays the uh, sob story on you. But after revealing that you had murdered a bunch of people <laughs> at that point, I guess uh, I would have to tell him he's on his own. He, he leaves with this. Man. And that, now again, now this is the third time. We, we need to mention this because the, the a roommate actually takes note of the fact of what Richard was acting like at the time when he was leaving for this third time. He said that he was not apprehensive. You know, if someone was apprehensive, you know, maybe in the sense that he felt threatened in some way and, and you know, was unsure about going. It was more like, oh, I got to see this guy. Yeah, again. yeah. So that was the vibe that his roommate, I guess, was getting from this. Uh, Which kind of makes sense because it, it seems like that was the consensus here, especially after that first visit. It seems like he didn't want to go the second time either. But which makes me think, I mean, if you didn't want to go so badly and, uh, you know, this guy <laughs> admitted to you that he's a murderer, we basically just tell him to fuck off. So it makes me think, could George here, could he possibly have had some dirt on Richard from their time together? In Germany. Hmm. Perhaps Dick wasn't as much of a stand-up guy as he portrayed himself to be. Oh, man. This uh, this show's going right down the, 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 the crapper. <laughs> this may be it, Chris. This may be it. But in all seriousness, maybe uh, he had some information on Richard as a way to get Cox to do what he wanted. That's a very good possibility. I mean, we don't know enough to know what was drawing Richard out of the barracks, even after he has told everyone at this point now that he really does not want to see this guy again. Something is either, he's either playing on his emotions, or he's got something on him, or he's drawing him with some fantastic idea of what they're going to end up doing if he comes out. I, we don't know. So the, uh, the two men leave the grounds. And time rolls on. Uh, the evening comes in. It's uh, it's about 11 p.m. now. Apparently, at this point, Richard is supposed to have returned at this point, but he does not. 
it's not something that is really alarming at all because sometimes cadets just roll in late. So nothing is thought of it. But then um, what happens next? Well, (laughs) nothing happens, Chris, because Richard Cox never showed back up. At 2.30 a.m., Richard's absence was finally reported to a superior officer. And uh, they gave his fellow cadets seemed to have given Richard quite a bit of leeway in order for him to come back before they reported him missing. But they couldn't go any further, you know. So at 2.30 a.m., they tell the superior officer, you know, they report him missing. They did their part, but they're like, well, maybe let's just hold off a little bit. He might come stumbling in a little bit and we don't want to get this guy uh, in a lot of trouble. But unfortunately, as Sunday morning rolled on and into Sunday afternoon, Richard never returned. And at that point, Chris, the New York State Police and the Department of the Army Criminal Investigation Division were informed. Get this. (laughs) The FBI also got their grubby little hands in on this. So now all the uh, big boys are involved in uh, Cox's disappearance. This is no longer a joke. And, and I don't know if this is merely being mentioned that eventually the FBI becomes involved or uh, if it was at this time that they do, but it does still seem odd to me that the FBI would get involved. But Well, you know, I'm, this, I'm wondering, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm wondering if this is treated as uh, going AWOL. Uh, even though you're in a military college here, you, you still have a contractual agreement with uh, the United States military. And, I mean, we're talking a matter of hours, half a day at most. So, I mean, I'm wondering if the FBI got involved just because this was being deemed uh, a case of a cadet going AWOL. I don't know. So the, they actually, on, on the, the grounds themselves and the, at West Point, there is a, a rather large investigation and manhunt that goes on to, to try to find either Richard or this George character. They were using, obviously they have troops, but they had troops, they had helicopters searching nearby areas. By land, um, by sea, by air. Okay. One way of saying it. <laughs> yes, Chris, the, 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 the search was extensive. Please continue. So, of course, at this point, and everybody knows that one of the options is he does he could have gone AWOL, but they actually discount this. And the reason for this is because, for one, he had uh, what would be the equivalent of about $1,000 in today's money. He had $87 in that time that he had left in his room. He had two suits, uh, civilian suits. And we also, you know, we know of the fact that he is engaged to be married. He uh, expects to marry after he's finished there at West Point. So there's really not any thoughts here that perhaps that this guy just decided to get up and leave because he was done with West Point. And I would think also, I mean, he served a few years in Germany. So, I mean, if you're not going to go AWOL there, I, I highly doubt that you would skip town on West Point. It's interesting, and and then you know they start you know elaborating further on on what the reason for him leaving is, and obviously the roommates fess up completely about who this George character is, and you know everything that Richard said about him. The West Point psychologist gets involved, and they bring up the theory, and and this this comes back to something that you had mentioned earlier about uh, perhaps there being some sort of a romantic thing going on here. They speculate that perhaps Richard 
was homosexual, or, or at least bisexual. Perhaps he was going out with this gentleman to uh, places or to... Uh, like gay bars and shit, right? I mean, I'm, I'm looking here and it says that they actually investigated some uh, gay bars in New York City to see if they can find any information as to whether or not um, Cox had been there. <laughs> but... <laughs> but there is nothing uh, that fits... <laughs> But Chris, uh, please let me finish my thought. Uh, but the, we find out that the police were <laughs> hard-pressed to find uh, Dick uh, in any of the gay bars that they investigated. Well, at least not that Dick. Yes, yeah, so nobody in these areas or in these bars have seen anybody that fits the description of either this George character or of Richard. And now, granted, while at that time period you're still you're you're pretty far you're west point you're still pretty far away from the city i would say it's a good hour plus drive yeah if you if you were if you were driving from there and i don't know what the train situation was like back then but anyway that investigation comes up empty when when looking in, in new york city but i would think i mean this is a pretty good theory if you ask me well i'm gonna run a scenario by you here because this seems like, to me, my gut is anyway leaning in this direction that the psychologist had mentioned. These two know each other from Germany. They could have a history in Germany. You know, Richard is very young, impressionable. You know, perhaps this older gentleman that Richard is looking up to that served in the uh, army, actually fought in the war. And this guy's head's clearly fucked up because of the things that he's claimed that he's done. Perhaps he starts getting more than friendly with Richard and he tries to come back and see him again. And maybe he tries to take things a little too far for Richard's liking. And so he suddenly tells his roommates that he no longer wants to see this gentleman because he's... He's a little cuckoo, but of course he's not going to fess up to the fact that perhaps he was doing something with this guy mm. other than just drinking in his vehicle. And so... Well, I mean, that goes back to my point in the beginning of the show, Chris. I mean, where you shot me down. It made me feel terrible about myself. Because if you got a chance to go off campus, so why wouldn't you go to a restaurant and hang out for a little bit? I mean, it, it did seem a little bizarre to me that they just hung out in the car drinking. And, and you, you shot me down. <laughs> made me feel terrible. <laughs> well, well, and nearly, I'm, still, I'm still holding a grudge against you for that. <laughs> it, it, it is, it of course, could be logical that they would just be shooting the shit while having a drink. I mean, when you're going out with a buddy, especially one maybe you haven't seen in a while, you're going to go out and you're going to have some drinks. Maybe not necessarily in the back of somebody's car, but, you know, you're going to go out and have some drinks. So, anyway... Maybe it was something a little deeper than just drinks. And this could lead to the discomfort that Richard was feeling uh, about this George character that he was fessing up to his roommates. But of course, he told them that it was related more to the things that this guy claimed to have done when he was in Germany. Well, remember, too, we're in 1950. So the, the stigma of being gay, my goodness. I mean, oh, yeah. something, especially in the military. Uh, up until recently, I mean, you would have to imagine if this was indeed the case, obviously. Obviously, Richard would be trying to hide this uh, at all costs. And perhaps take it to the grave. 
to the grave indeed, Chris, because we, we unfortunately we can assume, I mean, this is what, 73 years later. And once Richard disappeared on that fateful night of January 14th, 1950, he's never been seen nor heard from again. Or, 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 or has he? done <laughs> Chris I mean is, is this the end of the story what the hell happens is this the last time we ever see or hear from Cox again well it would seem but maybe not because in 1954 Bill mm-hmm. 1954 a story comes out from a man that they only refer to here as Shotwell because <laughs> he doesn't want his first name revealed alright uh, come on lead on Shotwell what do you got for us uh, he had joined the U.S. Coast Guard uh, after he left the West Point Prep School, and he reports to the FBI that he had a conversation with Richard Cox at the Washington, D.C. Greyhound Lines bus station in 52. And this was two years, of course, after Richard had gone missing. And he said that uh, at the time that Shotwell knew that Cox had been absent from West Point, but when he saw him, that he assumed that that Richard was no longer missing. You know, obviously, if you just happen to run into somebody, you think, oh, you know, maybe the guy was found, you know, there was just some mix-up and there was no issue. Unless he was actually present for the full-on investigation, he would never know that it became something of, of a serious matter and that that he was declared dead. So he, he claims that he sees this guy. And he goes further on to saying that Richard told him that he resigned from West Point and that he was moving to Germany. Hmm. Now, unless this guy is completely fabricating this story, this would make some sense, right? Because you're talking about somebody who served in Germany for, you know, a stretch, knows at least some of Germany and was at West Point at one point in time. So this guy's story kind of lines up with something that perhaps Richard would have said. Perhaps, and I'm going to lay this on the line for you right now, perhaps Shotwell is indeed telling the truth and he's being very accurate in what had happened here. Perhaps uh, old George wanted to be with Richard so badly that he was in touch with Richard throughout his return from Germany and through his stay at West Point. Maybe this was planned by both Richard and George because we find out that the investigation had revealed that anybody that was named George that was deployed with Richard in Germany did not match the description of the George that Richard's fellow cadets had seen at West Point. So obviously, this is a pseudo name. George is not this gentleman's real name. So with that said, you know, I'm thinking here, perhaps, as you had alluded to, maybe this relationship started in Germany and they were trying to formulate a way to kind of reconnect where they could uh, go about their business. They were able to carry out this relationship in Germany. Perhaps they wanted to go back to the original starting point of their relationship, which would kind of then make sense that they would indeed head back to Germany together. 
this is a possibility and it does line up because if a man who claims to have spoken with him and this man says that he resigned from West Point and was moving to Germany, this makes sense from a, a person who has been to Germany before that he would be going there. Although I don't know why he would fess up all that information knowing that he is still missing because obviously Richard would know he's still missing if if he was alive and indeed said that to Shotwell at the time. But there is another sighting apparently and there's a curious thing about the name that this person gives that fits the description of Richard Cox. Because in 1960, and now uh, we should mention that by 1960, Richard is actually declared legally dead at this point. He's declared that by his family in 1957. So now in 1960, a FBI informant says that he spent time at a bar in Melbourne, Florida with this man that afterwards he described as this person, Richard Cox. But the man called himself R.C. Mansfield. And he said that his acquaintances called him Richard. Now, Mansfield should sound familiar to you because that is where Richard was born. Mansfield, Ohio. Whoa. <laughs> right, Chris, this is insane. So who knows? I, this this has got that feel of a potential murdering lunatic, or acquainting, reacquainting, you know, with somebody that he saw back in the day, and takes things too far to the point where murder is the only answer to get out of it. Or did they run off together? Well, not. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to think at this point, but, you know, we should mention there's another theory that uh, I have here in front of me. And uh, th this theory revolves around Richard, quote unquote, disappearing to become a agent for the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. And we all know from other stories we've covered and just from having eyes and ears that the CIA isn't always the most, um, they don't always have the best reputation, I should say. So, you know, which makes me think that maybe there is some validity to this. Maybe the CIA, they, they, they saw something in Richard that they liked and they thought that he, they could utilize him to uh, some degree. Because there's uh, actually, a, there's a book uh, about this case, and uh, it's called Oblivion, that was uh, co-penned by uh, Marshall Jacobs and Harry Mayhaffer, I guess is how you would say it. And apparently they had a claim from a retired CIA official that Cox was given a new name by the intelligence community and spent the Cold War smuggling scientists connected to Russia's nuclear program across the Iron Curtain. Now, uh, granted, this is all coming from um, uh, a website entitled uh, strangeco.blogspot.com. I don't even know much about who wrote this piece, so but I am reading it verbatim here, and uh, it is kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, they, they go on to say that, after spending years in this program, apparently it's noted here that allegedly Cox died of cancer sometime in the 1990s, but his true identity to this very day is still a secret. 
So, I mean, that's just something else to, to throw into uh, the mix here. But uh, it seems to me that we're all on board that Cox left West Point and he lived for quite some time afterwards. It doesn't seem to me that Cox left West Point that night with George and was murdered and uh, just disposed of that same night. I mean, I guess it's a possibility, but the search that was conducted for the days following, I mean, that was a pretty intensive search. So you would think that they would have come up with something. I mean, I'm going to go out and throw out my conclusion here, at least to some extent. Please, because this is just getting uh, very long-winded, <laughs> and this is going to be the only episode of Hudson Valley Horror Month if we don't cut it out soon. It's going to be a Hudson Valley Horror Month long episode. <laughs> I I believe, and I don't know which of these scenarios are potentially true, but I do not think that uh, Richard was murdered. I think that he he went somewhere else, whether that be Germany whether that be uh, to the CIA, whatever, I do not think that Richard is actually dead. Or he may be now, but I don't think he died when he went missing. I am in uh, agreement with you here, Chris. And uh, I'm torn between him running off with uh, George to be in a relationship in Germany, or I can also buy into the CIA recruitment aspect. Because, you know, remember we mentioned that he was... uh, exceptionally intelligent as uh, you have to be to get into West Point. And um, we also have note that he was writing home to his mother that he couldn't stand West Point and he couldn't wait to get out of there. As you had mentioned, even though he disliked it, he was still in uh, the top 100 in his class. So, I mean, you put all those factors together, it seems to me like he would be a perfect recruit for the CIA. And remember this, Chris, because you brought up this point. Mm-hmm. Remember... The FBI showed up on scene mere hours after it was announced that old cock was missing. I think you mean Cox. Well, there is only one of him. <laughs> Don't come no. Chris. And with Chris, that being Chris, said, Chris wrote that terrible joke. Chris wrote that terrible <laughs> joke in a parking lot after also our softball game, but it is absolutely genius. <laughs> but not, no, Chris. I, I mean, I think there might be something to it. Why you're right? Why the hell was the FBI there hours afterwards? Unless there was a circumstance where the man that that Richard was hanging out with this George character fit the description of someone that the FBI was looking for. I don't exactly know why the FBI would have found themselves involved, uh, unless perhaps being a military related that they are able to get the assistance of a group like that, like the, the Bureau. But to me, that seems a little odd. I mean, they were on scene quick for, for a, a young kid, uh, you know, um, being a little bit late showing back to the barracks. I mean, very suspicious if you ask me, but uh, what the hell do I know? But with all that said, what a way to kick off Hudson Valley Horror Month, Chris. <laughs> yes, uh, a very interesting case in, uh, in our own West Point, New York. Indeed, indeed. So with all that said, let's give the rundown so we can get the hell out of here for the night. 
you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at btcpod2020 at gmail.com, or you can get in touch with us on uh, Facebook or Instagram, Between the Cracks Podcast. If you would like to become one of our lovely patrons, please feel free to do so by clicking on the link in the show notes. So, bud, with all that said, what do you say we wish the fine, fine people out in podcast land the fondest? Oh, a fair.